0: Welcome to Budget Watchdog All-Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. Cut through the partisan rhetoric and talking points for the facts about what's being talked about, bandied about, and pushed in Washington. Brought to you by taxpayers for common sense. And now, the host of Budget Watchdog AF, TCS President, Steve Ellis.
1: Welcome to All American Taxpayers Seeking Common Sense. You've made it to the right place. For over 25 years, TCS, that's Taxpayers for Common Sense, has served as an independent, nonpartisan, budget watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. We believe in fiscal policy for America that is based on facts. We believe in transparency and accountability, Because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no one wants to see their tax dollars wasted. Today, dear podcast listeners, Budget Watchdog AF is taking a field trip away from Capitol Hill, outside the Beltway, and in search of common sense on one of the most important pieces of legislation that will come out of the 118th Congress, the Farm Bill joining us on this podcast field trip to the corn and soybean farms of northeastern nebraska are taxpayers for common sense senior policy analyst sheila korth and mr agriculture himself josh sewell i hope you both are wearing appropriate footwear and ate a good breakfast i had my glass of ethanol this morning
2: i'm well fed too well fed with corn steve thanks
1: well that was uh john john mccain's uh Plea, uh, when he was running for president the second time around, he uh, said that he uh, drank a glass of ethanol with his breakfast every morning to try to appeal to the Iowa uh, farmers. So anyway, let's get back to the program. Sheila, loyal listeners of this show know that TCS has worked on farm bills for a long time. And, and actually, I've worked on farm bills since 2002. And Josh TCS has had success in the agriculture arena, like eliminating wasteful $5 billion a year direct payments. But another part of our work on these issues allows us to connect personally with beneficiaries of the farm safety net everyone here in the capital is working on. Sheila, tell us about the father and son farmers, Scott and Skiles Kincaid.
2: Well, Steve, they're the current generations of the Kincaid family to farm their land in Northeast Nebraska, not far from where I grew up um, in Randolph, Nebraska. Scott is 63 years old and Skiles is 20. Skiles' great-grandparents bought their current farm in the 1940s, and they farm a total of about 1,800 acres. 1,200 of that is for Scott and 600 for Skiles. Both Scott and Skiles were there together in their original farmhouse when I met with them yesterday.
3: My grandparents owned this farm since forty-two, and then my dad bought it from him, and then eventually I bought it from him. So we have corn and soybeans, uh, about fifty-fifty ratio. We just uh, swap back and forth each year. Um, we, when I was a kid, we grew mostly corn and oats, and a few soybeans. And eventually, the oats kind of went away, and soybeans kind of took it over because it was—it's it's a good rotation. A lot of good things about oats, but it just wasn't profitable, and beans kind of soybeans kind of took that over. There is some alfalfa around, some pasture ground, uh, but for the most part, corn and soybeans is what you see when you
0: drive down the road for mile after mile. I must've been a sophomore in high school when I got into it. I think actually dad was, had been renting a quarter, it was share crop rent for quite a while and essentially gave that up to let, um, uh, to let me do it. So it was, it was a good um, opportunity to get started farming. Share crop simple because you know you don't have to come up with a bunch of cash at the beginning of the year for cash rent. I just, uh, they essentially pay for, I think, 40% of the inputs and then they get 40% of the profit. So I don't have to come up with a ton of cash, so it's a good way to get started. And then I think my junior year of high school, we kind of needed a new sprayer and that convinced me to buy one. It was another way for me to make money. I kind of thought I could turn around and do some custom spraying on the side. Um, that's kind of evolved a little bit. I've, Upgraded sprayers now, and I spray about ten thousand acres south south of here, about an hour. I've been able to pick up some more ground to rent. So my second year of farming, I picked up another quarter, just so a few miles down the road, which is share crop as well. And then just last year, I was able to get another.
1: I feel like we are all right there with you in Nebraska for this conversation with Scott and Skiles, Josh. We're going to hear what these farmers actually think about farm subsidies in just a minute. But back in D.C., they are a bit of a nightmare for taxpayers, right? get us all back up to speed here.
4: Yeah, Steve, you're right. The current state of farm subsidies is absolutely a fiscal nightmare. So farm programs are costing us as much as ever, even while net farm income nationwide is at its highest level in 50 years. So currently now you have subsidies tied to when crop prices drop, for when there are shallow dips from recent levels of revenue, when profit margin guarantees, and there's a whole web of revenue insurance products for things like uh, corn, soybeans, cotton, you name it. Plus, uh, it's important to know right now that we're not just talking about farm bill programs. There's also these emergency disaster programs that are coming out every year. And so you add it all up, and I think in 2020, we had a record $46 billion in direct government subsidies to agricultural businesses. You know, and in the last two years, it's only dipped a little from that $46 billion. So uh, here at TCS, we think that's just, It's just too much money going out the door. And uh, we believe that farm subsidies should be what I call the three F's of farm policy. Focused, fiscally responsible and foster resilience instead of dependence on Uncle Sam. We should note that Scott actually joined us on a crop insurance webinar that the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition held last July and had a lot to say on this.
2: As Scott said at the time, he agreed with you on a lot of those F's. Um, We could insert another one if needed, but I'm not allowed to do that apparently today um And uh, that's not really changed. So let's hear what Scott and Skiles said yesterday about farm payments and federal crop insurance subsidies.
3: To really understand, we probably we need to go back in history, and I think actually started back in the 30s or something. But like most government programs, they never do go away. They just keep growing and growing. And so I guess in the last few years, they subsidized crop insurance premium significantly. I want to say it's like 60% of the premium is subsidized, and so buy crop insurance which is a good thing to be able to do i've always argued that i don't know why the government needs to be subsidizing the premium sounds like a good deal to begin with but essentially that subsidy just ends up in a price of cash rent or the land so i guess to me there's not really you know why can't crop insurance just be a private enterprise that's not subsidized yeah, premium is going to be more, but in the end, I don't know what I'm really, worse off.
1: I think that's an interesting viewpoint on the federal government's involvement in the insurance market. We have federal flood insurance backed by the government too, but to have a farmer say he thinks that he'd be okay without taxpayers subsidizing his crop insurance, that's something Congress should take note of.
4: Yeah, we talk all the time about finding ways that farmers can use private risk management options instead of relying so heavily on federally subsidized insurance, as well as this unpredictable, unbudgeted, so-called emergency ad hoc disaster payments.
1: Yeah, I mean, at TCS, we work across the spectrum on disaster issues, uh, ranging from the impacts of hurricanes or from drought, uh, wildfire, and working with FEMA on how to better prepare for disasters and, and save taxpayers money. One of the things that we've pushed for years has been this idea of pre-sponding, using disaster dollars to prevent future disasters and basically making people less vulnerable, or in this case, crops less vulnerable in the future. Speaking of crops, I mean you all have been impacted by a drought in Nebraska here, right, Sheila?
2: That's right, Steve. We have been heavily impacted by an ongoing drought here in Nebraska. There's been severe drought in some places and um, that impacted last year's crop, and looks like we're going to have near record crop insurance indemnities again which are paid for partially by taxpayers for last year's drought impacts we had the 2012 drought which really impacted farmers here as well and so scott and skiles talked about that yesterday how they are impacted by drought conditions
3: in 2012 as well last year both were quite dry 2012 was i think maybe hotter Um, but it At least having the insurance, you know, it does take away a lot of stress of worrying about it. You know, I think back when my grandparents' farm, there was no crop insurance. There was no farm program. They just had to make it work. A couple of years ago, we had a a hailstorm. It missed us for the most part. We got hail on one farm pretty well wiped out the soybeans on that farm. And that's where my grandparents had lived. And I thought back when they lived there and they got a hailstorm, that was their whole farm. But to me, it was one farm of a few. I had some other farms a few miles away that were unfazed. So it wasn't as big a deal to me in that way. they That would have been everything. They, they would have had livestock that they would have had to feed. And what are you going to feed them? It's all been hailed off. You know, alfalfa would grow back in the pasture eventually, but they got to deal with that. Now we've got all kinds of things that it does take away the stress. Crop insurance is good to have, have it available but I don't know why the government has to be involved because in this case, like I say, what they subsidize just winds up in a pocket of the land owner. Eventually, either through cash rent or when they sell it. And I always think if if I can afford to own a farm, do I really need money from the government? And so if I farmed 20,000 acres and he farmed 1,000 acres, I'm getting help on 20,000 acres that, and he's only getting help on 1,000 acres, um, I don't have anything against somebody want to farm twenty thousand acres. That's quite a challenge, and if they can do it, more power to them. That's the American way. But why does the government have to be involved in helping them do that when it's taking away opportunities from people like Skiles? So,
0: to me, that's rather frustrating. Last year was obviously dry, so it benefited from crop insurance only slightly. Um, the price went up so much that I. Didn't come out as short as I guess I would have had the price stayed where it was like all year. Same in 2012, the price went up. Didn't harvest a lot, but the price went up so much that you look around and a few years ago, everyone's tractor and combine and head and pickup was a 2013 because everyone got a whole ton of money from insurance that year. They all had to buy something because the price went up so much. Yeah,
4: it's it's an important point. Just considering yield losses for ag uh, in years of disasters is looking at one side of the equation. Uh, There's also the fact that crop prices actually rise in years when there's widespread drought. I mean, that's how it always has worked, at least so far. And it's important to know that it's extremely rare for a complete wipeout in a crop, Uh, certainly as a sector, but even for an individual farmer. It is extremely rare that they lose all of their crop. So simple economics says that when supply goes down, prices go up. Uh, Scott and Skiles, they make great points about still being able to make money as a farmer with the yield they do have, even during years of drought. And Scott, not seeing the need for ad hoc disaster payments, uh, you're preaching to the choir. They already have subsidized crop insurance. That is the safety net. There is not a need most of the time for the payments on top of what's already there. But as we've said on this podcast and other places, that hasn't stopped Congress from appropriating another $20 billion total since 2017. And they just threw another $3.7 billion on the omnibus back in December.
1: Yeah, I've heard folks say that it's not a safety net, it's a hammock or, or even a trampoline. Uh, so, got it. You're listening to Budget Watchdog, All Federal, the podcast dedicated to making sense of the budget, spending, and tax issues facing the nation. I'm your host, TCS President Steve Ellis, and we continue now with our farm field trip already in progress. A quick note here to the podcast, Faithful. Resources on this topic, Ag Disaster Aid, and other materials on federal spending, everything from the omnibus back in December to staying up to date on the debt ceiling, can be found on our website, taxpayer.net. Josh, where do things stand at the moment on the Farm Bill? The current bill expires at the end of September this year, correct?
4: Yes, many of the programs in the bill do expire at the end of this fiscal year. But i got to say, we'll see how fast these committees move on a Farm Bill reauthorization. Uh, There ain't a lot of stuff moving very fast in this Congress, uh, and the Farm Bill is one of those. So to be fair, on the House side, Chairman Thompson, he held one field hearing in Pennsylvania and is promising more. And the Senate, we just got word that they're holding their first hearing here in D.C. on February 1st. But it's going to be tough. I mean, we have a divided Congress, and partisanship, as anyone who's been watching knows, is already at a heightened pitch. And so what I would expect is there could easily be An extension of current law that would extend most of the programs for one year, buying Congress time into 2024 uh, to just have more time to do these bills. Uh, It's important to note though that crop insurance is permanently authorized. So Congress could never pass another farm bill and the crop insurance program would just keep churning along. It's the other parts in it that are uh, technically expiring. So the big part, the nutrition programs, supplemental nutrition assistance used to be known as food stamps commodity programs, those shallow loss programs we talked about, the livestock disaster, those things which make up the most of the spending of the $1.3 trillion bill, those things do technically expire. And so if you want to have them, if they don't get something done by the end of this fiscal year, they're going to have to do one year extension. Now, I do want to be a little more specific about why most people that I talk to in Washington are expecting it's going to be harder to pass a bill because the House has promised, this is ironic, to be more open with debate and amendments. Nothing scares an Aggie more than an open amendment process on the Farm Bill. And that's because of the past and reality, not conjecture, but the fact that in years past, we and the people we work with have been successful at getting bipartisan Farm Bill amendments that rein in subsidies to farmers, cut off millionaires from programs, and place more meaningful common sense limits on who can actually get farm subsidies. And members like Senator Grassley from Iowa and Representative Earl Blumenauer from Oregon who led these past efforts, they're still here and they're ready to do this again. They wanna have this debate. And the way Congress has jammed through the last two farm bills, especially the 2018 one, was by limiting debate and limiting the time and input that members of Congress and senators could have In fact, in the Senate, we got zero good amendments. There were only, I believe, five total amendments to the bill. This is after 2014 when we had 71 or 73 votes on amendments on the floor. And this is the Senate where they do everything by UC. They had 73 votes. And this last time they had less than 10. They had five, I think it was. And they were, frankly, garbage, most of them. And so... This idea that you're gonna have a more open amendment process, a more open debate, let all the members have input, that scares the ad committees because there's such a diverse set of interests and a desire to have a good bill, whether it's nutrition title, commodity title, crop insurance, all the crops that don't get subsidies, there's such a desire for change that an open amendment process is most likely going to make the farm bill better and thus the committee doesn't want that bill on the floor.
2: Right, Josh, and one major point about that is the amendments that we've seen that have tried to rein in those subsidies so that's something that we hear out in nebraska too and here's what scott had to say about the loopholes that he sees in farm subsidy programs and the impact that that's having on rural communities
3: i kind of go back to when we had just making payments from the government and they had payment limitations they called them payment limitations but there was hardly any limitation to it and we argued against that. I and some friends of mine, we were part of the corn growers organization at the time. And I always felt like that corn growers organization didn't want to fight for per- payment limitations very bad. And we tried to argue for them and they would look at us like we, they thought we were wanting to live back in the 1950s. But that wasn't the case. We were just looking at the fact that, you know, people are expanding their their operations significantly at the expense of rural communities. Obviously, it doesn't take as many people to farm an acre as it used to. I farm several more acres than my grandparents did. Um, That's just technology and and progress, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you have farmers who are working the system to get thousands of dollars from the government that they can use to expand their their, uh, operation, and then you're displacing people who could have been farming that now they can't afford to because these big farmers are driving up the price of rent. So they push them off the farm. Well, what happens to rural communities, the hardware store and lumber yard and the schools and makes it harder? You don't have as many fire departments and on down a line. And like I said, part of that is just technology, but a lot of it in this case was not technology. It was government more or less picking and choosing the winners and the losers. And that to me was what I felt was wrong. And that's what I think about my grandparents. They didn't bid up the price of land because they couldn't afford to lose that. So it didn't happen. Now you got the government guaranteeing that you're not going to go broke. So yeah, let's go buy more and, and pay more. and. To me, that doesn't seem really good for rural America because it's killing towns and communities.
1: There can be a limited role for the federal government to step in and help people in times of need, but Scott is saying farm subsidies can do more harm than good. Instead of creating unintended consequences, government programs need to be targeted and achieve public goods in a way that spends tax dollars wisely. Back to Josh's three Fs. So to that end, the Inflation Reduction Act enacted last year contained additional spending for agriculture conservation. Sheila, what's going to be the impact of this spending?
2: Well, Steve, we've talked about this spending before. There's approximately $20 billion more billion that were enacted in the Inflation Reduction Act from last year that will go to ag conservation programs. These are programs that are already in the Farm Bill. They're already programs that farmers are familiar with and sign up for, and they fund conservation practices like less tillage of cropland, which can reduce soil erosion, and also reducing the use of expensive fertilizers, which can improve water quality. No-till practices are already required in Northeast Nebraska where Scott and Skiles farm, which come in exchange for farm subsidies because the hills where they farm are deemed highly erodible land. Here's what Scott had to say about his support for no-till farming
3: well I think I think another thing is no-till to me it makes a lot of sense. Um, you can conserve the moisture and, and uh, the soil and I think back when I was a kid that was your only option you had to plow and dis things you had to bury the residue because the planter couldn't go through the residue and put the seed in the soil so that was your really your only choice for the most part at the time but every summer, We'd go and cultivate, you know, after we plowed and disc and planted and hoed and cultivated a couple times and never would fail. You'd get a thunderstorm and the water would run right down those where you just cultivated. You'd make a groove right in the dirt or, you know, every 36 inches was another groove to guide the water to the bottom of the hill. Well, then you'd have a flat spot there with mud about six inches deep and that all came right off the hillside. So I got away from tillage about as soon as i could i still see a lot of tillage going on and i really don't know why i don't know what they're accomplishing with it i see a great big four-wheel drive tractor pulling a huge disc when somebody's got 20 thirty thousand acres they got to get planted and they got a limited time they, sometimes when you no tilling you've got to wait just a little bit longer it's just too wet you need to dry a little bit more well that tillage will help dry it out and then get out there and get it planted so again with crop insurance and all these programs, we've had rules that you couldn't bury all that residue. You had to leave so much on the ground or you don't fit into the rules, you're not eligible for any subsidies. And yet I see black dirt all around me every year. I don't quite understand how that's working, but I see it constantly.
4: So USDA's Office of Inspector General has found that the conservation accountability standards that Scott refers to have been inconsistently enforced across the U.S. In fact, in some places, they're not enforced at all. And so that means in reality that taxpayer dollars are in fact subsidizing soil erosion and degraded water quality in certain places. And I just think having federal programs with virtually no strings attached is not a recipe for success. It's also not a recipe we see anywhere else in the budget. So instead, ag policies need to be reformed to incentivize farmers to diversify their crops lower their risk of crop loss, uh, adopt practices like cover crops, um, these things that help build soil health. And frankly, the beauty is that these conservation accountability standards, which are common sense, is when you make these changes, farmers can build both their physical and their economic resilience over time, meaning less dependence on Uncle Sam for bailouts when disasters strike. And Scott and Skiles, they've done just that by planting cover crops and diversifying their operations, even planting ingredients for one of agriculture's most important products, American craft beers.
3: I have tried some cover crops in the past. Um, In fact, when we were growing the hops, the guy that we were selling the hops to was, Small small brewery, and he was going to start a malting facility and needed barley so hey maybe here's a chance to grow some barley and spread out my time of harvesting a little bit and plant some cover crops so in this case i was here i can plant this barley and harvest it in july plant a cover crop and uh, kind of looked into how all that was going to work and so we did that and we planted a cover crop and it grew great we had great success with that had that grazed off during the winter and the cover crop that we used i think there were 10 different species in there but they were all annual crops so they didn't carry over to the next year so we didn't have to go and spray them but anyway we had good growth on there and The next year then i i did that on 80 acres so we grew the corn and we took some soil samples and looked at the microorganism number of microorganisms they have a test for that you look at how much co2 is being given off and some things like that. And it was like off the chart almost. Where we had the soybeans, it was way at the low end of the microorganisms that we had. I was kind of disappointed in how low that was. But where we had a cover crop, it was almost off the chart the other way. Wow, this is great. I'm really going to learn a lot here, and we're going to have some potential and move on. But when we harvested it, I was disappointed to find that it all yielded pretty much the same. And I really never fully understood that. But that was my experience with cover crops.
1: Great work here, Sheila. I hope all of our podcast listeners appreciate the wisdom our farmers are trying to share with everybody right now.
2: Thanks, Steve. And thanks so much to Scott and Skiles for sharing their expertise and their insight with us. So on that note, here's what Scott wants lawmakers to understand this year as they get to work on that farm bill.
3: When it comes to farm programs, whether it's crop insurance or just payments of any kind, And I've always kind of argued against them. If you're trying to help everybody, you're not helping anybody, and that's inequitable. But I run into people who just look at me and kind of shake their head. And one of them, at least one of them, made a comment as well. But in agriculture, we got to deal with the weather. And I thought, well, so what? I mean, I know that. And my grandparents knew that. They had to deal with the weather. So his argument that we got to deal with the weather, to me, didn't hold much water as far as I was concerned. Yeah, it's a risk, but that's part of business and business. Deal with it, you know? That you don't run to the government for every little thing.
1: Well, there you have it, podcast listeners, straight from the farmer's mouth. This is the frequency, mark it on your dial, subscribe and share and know this. Taxpayers for common sense has your back America. We read the bills, monitor the earmarks and highlight those wasteful programs that poorly spend our money and shift long-term risk to taxpayers. We'll be back with a new episode soon, and I hope you'll meet us right here to learn more.